Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing, and on this edition, the death of Alexei Navalny received with shock and anger. But is there any way of putting further economic pressure on Vladimir Putin? Also, Donald Trump told to pay $350 million for failing to disclose his true wealth. Donald Trump is a wealthy man. I mean, Forbes estimates him to be worth $2.6 billion, but $350 million is a lot of money for anyone. African nations dominate the list of the fastest growing global economies. So will that change the way the continent is treated? Also, the U.S. defense budget set to be overtaken by the interest payments on U.S. debts. And why romantic novels are outselling everything else in bookshops. But first, Alexei Navalny, the man seen as the leader of Russia's opposition, is dead. Prison authorities in Russia say he collapsed after a walk at the detention facility where he was being held in Russia's Arctic. It's caused fury and outrage among Western leaders. Speaking at the White House, President Biden said Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, alone was to blame. Reports of his death, if they're true, and I have no reason to believe it or not, Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. Make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. President Biden, will Chancellor Schultz of Germany, said it appeared Mr Navalny had paid for his courage with his life. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said Mr Navalny had been the fiercest advocate for Russian democracy. And in a joint statement, EU leaders said he'd been slowly murdered by the Putin regime, which they said feared nothing more than the dissent of its own people. But can there be anything more than angry words on all this? Russia is already the most sanctioned country on earth because of its invasion of Ukraine. I asked Konstantin Sonin, who's an economist and professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, what more could be done? I don't think that that the Western leaders could do something specifically to hurt Russia, to punish Russia for uh, killing Navalny. I think that this, when they say... held accountable. They basically make a statement about the outrage. It's not a promise of doing something. I suppose in a concrete way, perhaps sanctions are the only weapon they have. Um, at the moment, there are a lot of sanctions on Russia, but the Russian economy doesn't seem to be in deep trouble, does it? That depends on the definition of the deep trouble. Certainly, uh, Russian people live much worse than they would have lived if there were no war. Last year, a million Russians left Russia, despite the fact that nobody bombs Russian cities, there are no famine, and there is a huge, a huge amount of people who take, took refuge from Russia, which means that the quality of life has declined significantly, like taking every aspect into account. So I'm not sure that this is, uh, that Russian economy is in a good shape. It's certainly not collapsing, whatever this means, but it's not in a good shape. 
But in a way, it almost has to collapse in order to have the effect that the West wants, which is to initially, of course, end the Ukraine war. Are you saying that's not going to happen? I think that those who believed that sanctions could just collapse collapse the country, it was basically wishful thinking. Sanctions never been able to defeat a country alone, defeat in the sense that just like devastated it stopped doing what it was doing. But sanctions worked in the sense that Putin has less money to wage the war against Ukraine, has less money to buy to build new missiles and tanks. So it has an effect. It's just not the ultimate weapon. But Professor Sonny, the data which we've seen, and admittedly, I suppose you can't be sure of the accuracy of the data, suggests that some Russian banks are doing extremely well, that they're managing to sell quite a lot of oil and gas, uh, and that they are managing to buy weapons. So as an outside observer, one would say this isn't really even making life that difficult for them. Uh, Certainly. There are a lot of people who... Uh, live extremely well um, because of the war. People in the Putin circle, all these people with big stakes in military industrial production, those people who control state banks, uh, Putin cronies in Gazprom, yes, they live, they live extremely well and even better because of the war. They, of course, they left, they, they probably lost most of their wealth that they held in, in the West. Not everything, but a lot. But yes, they profit out of the war. But this is not, I mean, most Russians are not owners of banks or oil companies or military industrial enterprises. So most of Russians suffer because of the war. But I suppose that the issue is, can enough pressure be put on in overall to change policy? And, and you're saying even that really doesn't work. No, I think this this doesn't this doesn't work, and I I think the main role of sanctions is to make Putin having less money to wage the war, and in this sense, sanctions work. And uh, I I think that sanctions make his regime less stable because basically people gets unhappy. People do not like Putin; they're unhappy about Putin. They just fear there is a lot of armed men who keep Russian people in line, so people fear. But the more unhappy they are, the more armed men Putin needs to stay in power. I suppose if Western sanctions were extended to the extent that anyone who actually trades with Russia were themselves sanctioned, if effectively you made it almost impossible to do business with Russia, any country in the world, that would have an effect, wouldn't it? This probably would not. Although I could imagine that Russia keeps waging its war against Ukraine, even if there is full scale full scale of sanctions, very little international trade. But I I'm not sure that countries like China or India would impose um, very severe sanctions. It's just that they they it's it's extremely profitable to do business with Russia. I mean they pay less for the same goods, they charge a higher premiums, they get higher margins on every trade with Russia. So this this trade is extremely profitable for them. And geopolitically, uh, for them, there is no like big reason to side with the United States. So they both have high profits and also sort of uh, not following in the Western line. So I think they will not impose severe sanctions. Konstantin Sonin there at the University of Chicago. 
Now, Donald Trump has been ordered to pay more than $350 million in penalties in his civil fraud trial in New York. A judge found him to be liable for falsely altering his net worth to receive tax insurance benefits. Mr. Trump's also been banned from serving as a director of any New York corporation for three years. His two sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, were co-defendants, and they've received similar bans. Well, our reporter in New York, Madeline Halpert, told me more about the judgment. So it's a very detailed 92-page decision from this judge where he really goes into detail about why he's decided on all these penalties. So there are several parts to the order. One, excuse me, the decision. One is that there's uh, an over $350 million fine for Trump and his organization. And his sons, Eric and Donald Jr., were also fined, too, about $4 million each. And then there's bans on um, restrictions on their business. So um, Trump is banned from serving as an officer or director of any company in New York State for three years, while his sons, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr., are banned for two years. And then finally, there's this sort of oversight team that the justice is requiring. So it's an independent monitor and a director of compliance who will basically watch over all of the Trump's New York business. So it's extremely restrictive for the Trump organization because the director of compliance has to basically sign off on financial documents, approve everything, and it's costly for them to because the Trump team has to pay for it. Yeah, and I mean, just remind us what it is that, that, that he's paying for, in the sense, what, what he's been found guilty of. Yes, yeah, so he's been found not guilty because it's a civil trial, but liable of frauds. Trump, his two sons, Don Jr. and Eric, and the Trump Organization. That was actually last year that the judge found them uh, liable for fraud. He basically found that the Trump Organization fraud- fraudulently inflated assets to secure better loan deals. Um, so then there was this three-month trial that followed to determine what the exact penalties should be for that fraud. And that's this ruling that we have today. Okay, I mean, it's a lot of money for him to pay, even though he's obviously very wealthy and the restrictions on his business. I mean, it's all going to be quite difficult for him, isn't it? Definitely. You know, like you said, Donald Trump is a wealthy man. I mean, Forbes estimates him to be worth $2.6 billion, but $350 million is a lot of money for anyone. This is on top of $83 million that he already has to pay uh, writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation from a separate trial that also concluded in January. So, you know, experts I talked to put it this way. He's not going to suddenly become working class, but, you know, it'll be a big hit for him. And, you know, the business restrictions are a big hit for them, too. I mentioned that he has to pay for this, you know, independent monitor, but also it will really drastically change the way that they've that they are able to do business in the state. So I suppose the obvious question, is it the end of the story or is he going to appeal? Uh, his legal team has already said that that he's going to appeal the appeal the case. And, you know, Trump has responded to the ruling. He's called it, you know, a witch hunt. It's language that he's used throughout the entire trial. He's calling the judge crooked. Um, you know, the, he's claimed that the New York Attorney General's office and the judge are politically motivated and biased against him. So uh, an appeals court will be weighing in on this. Um, and I think that's a reason why you saw such a detailed um, ruling from the judge so that, you know, he could really lay out his arguments that will eventually be uh, reviewed by an appeals court. Madeline Halpert there. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Remarkable personal stories. Betrayal. It runs through my life and runs through my story. Deep dive documentaries. These children are using their own bags not to carry books, but they carry the drug markets in Sweden on their shoulders. And sport, but not as you know it. There's this massive landslide of myth, and somewhere in there is the truth. The BBC World Service tells the world's stories. Search for Lives Less Ordinary, the documentary, and amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
Now, the U.S. annual defense budget is huge, more than $700 billion. But here's a strange thing. Soon, it's going to be dwarfed by the amount of interest the country will be paying on its debts. It's all to do with high interest rates and the value of the U.S. government bonds known as treasuries. Well, Eric Wallerstein is the markets reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He joins me now. Eric, this on surface seems extraordinary that interest payments alone uh, will outweigh the defense budget. Yeah, on the surface, it's pretty wild. There was a huge inflection point during COVID, uh, tons of bond issuance when the U.S. was printing trillions of dollars. And now we have that coupled with higher interest rates. So really only Social Security and Medicare are going to outweigh how much we're spending on interest for years to come. And is that because, as you say, I mean, obviously things have moved in terms of interest rates. Uh, U.S. bonds, treasuries, I guess, uh, they've been moving in an interesting way. And that is kind of unpredictable, I suppose, when you come to working out how much interest the U.S. is going to be paying. Yeah, so it's all forecasts for now. But if you, you know, expect 4%, 5% interest rates on these bonds, that's far higher than we saw in the post-Great Financial Crisis world where interest rates across the world were set either at zero, near zero, negative in some cases. And now we're looking at a future where higher interest rates are kind of here to stay. So it's uh, it's definitely a new norm to get used to. And, you know, spending a lot on net interest payments and maybe issuing debt to get money to then pay your bondholders is not exactly a uh, sustainable situation, some think. Yeah, well, that was the next thing I was going to say. You get to a point, Eric, where you're borrowing money in order to pay interest on the other loans. I mean, it doesn't sound like the way to run run an economy at all. No, it certainly begins to snowball. Um, The U.S. is fortunate that treasuries are kind of the global haven. So, you you know, you don't don't really risk investors losing confidence outright in the treasury. But uh, you could see higher bond yields. That facilitates even, you know, more spending on interest. We saw it in the fall. Uh, Wall Street got a little shooken by um, the Treasury Department's decision to issue more debt than they expected. But uh, for now, things are pretty sanguine stateside, I'd say. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. And, and the trillion dollar uh, conundrum, really, which is people sort of have that in their mind as the barrier to cross. Are we going to get to the point where interest goes past that? Because it's not far off. Yeah, so uh, by... I want to say 2034, we're looking at nearly 4% of U.S. GDP is just going to paying interest on our debt. Uh, that's over $1.5 trillion. So it's it's nothing really to balk at. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, long-term bond yields in the U.S. could go even higher than, you know, the Congressional Budget Office is forecasting, which means, you know, net interest payments would be even more than this. Startling numbers, but thank you for bringing them to us, Eric. Eric Wallerstein there, markets reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Well, let's pick some of this up with Chris Lowe, Chief Economist FHN Financial in New York, who joins us now on the line. Chris, thanks for being with us. Those figures are pretty startling, aren't they? They are. (laughs) They're very startling, but this is what happens when uh, you put your budget on what Jay Powell, Fed Chairman, calls an unsustainable path. And that is that we are running deficits that are growing, that are bigger than we're growing the economy. And so that means every year it's that much more difficult to pay back the debt and the interest mounts. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the interest rates, well, I mean, that's been a massive subject uh, of speculation, of course, for the last year or so. Now, we have had some interesting data out today, Chris. Uh, The PPI, the, uh, the production prices, producer prices, 
um, higher than expected, suggesting that maybe inflation under control perhaps isn't quite as clear as people had thought it might be. Certainly the Atlanta Fed president, Raphael Bostic, seemed to think that and therefore potentially cuts in interest rates rather less likely or less soon anyway. Yeah, and that seems to be what the market is thinking as well. Uh, you'll remember as, as recently as a month ago in early January, market was looking for rate cuts in March. Uh, now the market expects the first rate cut in June. Uh, so that would be two meetings later. And uh, the, the reason is that we had this ugly January consumer price index a few days ago, followed by an ugly January producer price index. I, I would say to people, the only thing, bear in mind, it is January, and sometimes uh, service companies raise their prices, then it's difficult to seasonally adjust. Looking back at the PPI, the biggest increase last year was in January, and after that, it was pretty quiet. So hopefully things quiet down. We'll know in a month or two. But meantime, I'd say Dr. Bostick is right. Better if the Fed waits and is uh, certain before they cut rates. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one other thing that was hovering around the markets today. Interestingly, Coinbase, the crypto exchange. Crypto is very much around, as we know. Uh, and Coinbase has surged. They made their first profit in two years. I mean, when we think about, uh, about crypto, we kind of assume there's an awful lot of money there. But Coinbase hadn't made much up to now. No, they hadn't. And, you know, we had those uh, Sam Bankman freed uh, being the most recent one, those uh, it, it, coins and, and exchanges that blew up and a lot of people fled the sector. Now that things have settled down, it seems that people are looking for the ones they think they can rely on. Yeah. And Coinbase seems to be one of those. Well, there we are. Thanks very much indeed, Chris. Chris Lowe there, Chief Economist at FHN Financial in New York. Now, the summit of the African Union has begun in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. And as the 55 member states arrived, the African Development Bank published a report saying Africa will account for 11 of the world's 20 fastest growing economies in 2024. So does that mean that the continent will begin to play a more prominent role in global business? I spoke to Nate Allen, associate professor at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington. We're at a time when African governments and institutions are exerting much more influence over global affairs than they've had in the past. Part of this is a function of economic growth. Um, there are many, many African countries that are low-income countries. They're becoming low-middle-income countries. Um, as they grow, they're going to exert more and more economic influence. And we're also witnessing a period of kind of massive population growth, right? The, the population of Africa is expected to grow from about 1.3 billion today to 2.5 billion in 2050. It's going to represent uh, one quarter of the world's population uh, and the majority, uh, and, and, and the majority of that population is a youthful population. So there's vast, vast economic opportunity. But there's not a vast amount of wealth, at least in, in real and usable terms at the moment, partly because, of course, many countries are actually indebted in Africa. Is there any sign of getting past what is a, a problem that's been going back decades? Absolutely. So I think in order for African governments to reach their economic uh, potential, they have to have debt relief. That's one of their kind of key asks of global international financial institutions and, and lending partners. Um, they want debt sustainability at lower interest rates in order for their economies 
to grow. I mean, it's one of their key demands as part of the the, the G20. Um, I think that that you know you're going to see you're not going to see sustainable economic development in places such as Zambia, Ghana, other places with a heavy debt burden, without kind of I think a reconsideration of how how Africa is lended to and on what terms. But part of the problem with all this, surely, is that as long as they remain, uh, in a way, suppliants coming to ask for, for debt management, this kind of thing, and they can't be seen, in a way, as global leaders in economics, which is really what's needed. You're right, but I, you know, I, 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 would, I would agree with that. I think that, that part of it is on African governments to demonstrate that they can manage and steward their economies in a way that doesn't lead to excessive debt burdens. But, you know, some of it is also, I think, on the international community to offer, uh, I, I think, African governments uh, favorable terms. I mean, the, the, the Kenyan president, uh, William Ruto, a, a, a while ago made the point that, you know, there is bias by credit agencies that increase their borrowing costs by an estimated $74.5 billion. And a lot of that has to do with them being poor and being perceived as risky. So, I, you know, I think if Africa is going to reach its economic potential, th- there has to be a little bit of give and take between African governments and the global community, international financial institutions, specifically on the issue of, of debt. And one of the key things, I guess, is being able to speak powerfully with one voice. I mean, we know in Europe with the EU, that's worked very well. We know to some extent with ASEAN in Asia, uh, with organizations in South America. The AU is an organization of that kind. Does it really give African countries a big voice at something like the G20? So ironically, I think that Africa has a lot of difficulty speaking with one voice on geopolitical issues and and security issues. But I think actually when it comes to a lot of economic issues, the interests of most of its member states align, which I do think allow African institutions in the AU to make demands from these institutions that are going to be supported by the vast majority of member states. You know, one of the, one of the, some of the things that, that African governments want, according to the AU 2023 agenda, are well-educated systems, uh, citizens, uh, sustainable and inclusive economic growth, economic commerci- uh, uh, diversification, industrialization. And some of the specific asks are $100 billion in liquidity support from international financial institutions, more private sector investments, and, and efforts by the international community to make the global's international financial institutions more representative of Africa. You know, I think African governments receive something like 84% of the lending from for development purposes from the World Bank, but are not nearly as well represented at the World Bank in deciding, making lending decisions. So I think African governments want a seat at the table. Nate Allen there. Now, book sales in the US slumped last year overall, but it's a sweeter story for romance novels. It's been reliably a billion-dollar-a-year industry, and the genre has mushroomed over the past several years. A one-time embarrassing mainstay of the publishing world, romance is now getting a bit more respect thanks to a new diverse generation of writers and ardent fans who are thrusting it into the spotlight. Marketplace's Megan McCarthy-Carino reports. Books, Inc. has been serving San Francisco Bay Area readers since the 1940s. So have you been here before? But manager Carrie Gillette at the Mountain View branch says her store only had a couple shelves of romance when she started a few years ago. A romance reader herself, she pushed Books, Inc. to expand to this inviting full-wall display, dense with handwritten staff recommendations. A lot of people congregate here. It's a huge part of our store now, and it really pays off. 
Because, she says, romance readers are often repeat book buyers. And there's something for everyone. Fantasy, crime, apparently sports themes are trending. I think with Taylor Swift, people are really vibing with that right now, so. (laughs) And Gillette is spreading the love. Last summer, she started a monthly romance book club at the wine bar down the street, where a couple dozen customers gather to share their passion. People want to be happy and hopeful and escape a little bit and because it's you know always a happy ending that's what makes these sometimes fluffy books serious business says susan swinwood the editorial director at harlequin trade publishing a brand that's almost synonymous with romance whatever you feel about it there is no denying that it's uh, it's as relevant and valid a product as anything else Romance used to be sold more as a guilty pleasure to be hidden away. Now, Swinwood says, it's actually cool with readers who talk about it, often on the popular TikTok community known as Book Talk. So I've read 30 books this summer. Here are my 11 favorites. Talia Cadet runs digital strategy at a D.C. lobbying firm and spends many of her off hours making and watching videos about reading on BookTok. She also runs a book club called Froze and Prose, which has been heavy on romance lately. I have no shame about it. You can't you can't shame me. She says Book Talk has introduced her to a whole world of Black romance, often from independent or self-published authors who write about characters she relates to. And then seeing them have their happily ever after, especially, you know, as a Black woman being made to feel as though we don't deserve love, we don't deserve romance, we don't deserve softness and care. So yeah, it's been eye-opening. Social media has helped romance bypass traditional publishers by connecting directly to the audience, says Florida-based romance and mystery author Tamara Lush. And yes, that is her real name. It really is. It's the name I was given at birth. She quit her job as a reporter for the Associated Press a few years ago and says she makes 75 percent of her previous salary writing steamy stories about tropical islands and amateur detectives. She recently sold a book to the new publishing arm of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. And she's working on a new project called Swamp Thing. It's a funny romantic mystery um, about an alligator trapper who also solves crimes. Those cliché heterosexual bodice rippers with glistening muscles and heaving bosoms on their embossed covers still sell well. But now there's more space to represent a broader range of human experience, says Leah Koch. She's co-founder of an all-romance bookstore, The Ripped Bodice, with locations in L.A. and New York. When someone from our extremely diverse clientele comes in and says some version of, do you have a book with somebody like me? Whether that is, I use a wheelchair, or I wear a hijab, or I am pansexual, or whatever. Like, almost all the time, we have at least one or two options for them. And she'd like to see those one or two options expand for when those customers come back for more. Megan McCarthy Carino there of Marketplace talking about the rise of romantic fiction. But I noticed something. I mean, she's talking diversity. But what about men? I mean, do men read romances? Um, I have read a few, I suppose. You could call them the romances. I don't know. But are they marketing them in that way as well? I mean, this is a subject we could probably talk about a long way off. But that is it pretty much from World Business Report uh, being brought to you uh, from here in London for now.
Bye-bye.